Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We're living through various crises simultaneously, and the one that began these crises of crisis or crisis of crises is the coronavirus crisis, uh, which we haven't talked about very much on the show for the last couple of weeks. Uh, but it's well worth returning to because it hasn't gone away. And in many people's minds, it's actually getting worse. Uh, Maya Alexandri is a remarkable woman. She um, is the author of uh, The Plague Cycle, short story collection, number of other uh, published writing. She's also... Um, a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army, as well as a, a third-year medical student in New York City. And on top of all that, Maya is the author of three really quite troubling, emotional, chilling, and uh, deeply human essays in, in LitHub about what it's like to be uh, an EMT, an emergency medical technician on the front lines of the pandemic. Uh, Maya, what does an, an EMT do? Oh, that's a great question, Andrew. Thank you. Um, so EMTs are trained medical professionals who help take people in a medical emergency safely to the hospital. So our scope of practice allows us to do things like take and monitor people's vital signs, um, administer medications, um, and consult with doctors. Uh, we also work alongside other medical professionals like paramedics, whose scope of practice is broader than that of an EMT. Paramedics can do things like intubate patients, and they can give a broader range of medications, including medications by IV. The idea about having an EMT transport you to the hospital in an ambulance is that um, you might fear the idea of uh, having this service is that you might be in a state of medical emergency that's sufficiently severe um, that you need medical monitoring in transit because transit itself can be dangerous. Um, so that's what we're there to do. EMTs keep people alive between their homes or wherever we find them and the emergency department. Uh, reading these three essays in, in LitHub reminded me in some ways of, of war journalism. Um, is it like being at war at the moment out there in, 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 uh, as an EMT fighting the coronavirus? It's such an interesting question. The war metaphor is ubiquitous. We, we're referring to healthcare providers as heroes. We talk about people being on the front lines. Um, we do talk exactly as you said, we're at war, we're fighting the coronavirus. Um, I think there's certainly a lot of very relevant um, parallels. Certainly the camaraderie that one develops with one's coworkers um, 
when you're facing this risk together, um, when you're putting yourself out there at risk to, to, to help your community. Um, and there is unavoidably danger. There's also a lot of technical things that we have to do, um, like, you know, suiting up in our, in our uh, personal protective equipment as EMTs going into people's houses, um, uh, at, at my fire company, uh, we were wearing a lot more personal protective equipment than I wear as a medical student in the hospital. Um, so, so there are there are parallels. Personally, I I don't think it's the war metaphor is such a great fit, uh, just because the intent is so different. Um, there's no hostilities. Um, you're not. There isn't really an enemy. I, I mean, I suppose you can think about a virus as an enemy, but I'm not really sure it makes sense. It's it's a microorganism. It's part of our natural environment. It's um, it's doing evolutionarily what it is of fit to do, and it does it really well. Um, and a lot of our, our thinking of ourselves at war with the natural world has devastating consequences in other areas like in, in climate change. And certainly for my own intent going out to do what I do, um, if, I think if I, if I had the mindset of going into combat, um, I think I, I might not be able to be there for my patients um, who need to be able to establish rapport with me, who need to be able to trust me, um, who need to rely on me to take care of them, uh, even though they potentially could make me sick and I could potentially make them sick. So if we start to think about each other as the enemy, then I wouldn't be able to fulfill my task. Um, so, so I feel like uh, there's a lot more uh, nuance and there's also a lot, uh, I feel like it's very important to, to be able to be in touch with a kind of tenderness and care for other people um, when I serve as an EMT. And that would be completely inappropriate, I think, in a, in a combat environment. So perhaps your experience as an EMT and um, it has been good training for being a second lieutenant in the, in the army rather than the other way around. You've also done a number of other things. You, you've been an actress, a lawyer, UN consultant, a blues rock singer on, on top of being a, a published writer as well. Which of these trades do you think best prepared you for the horror of being an, an, an EMT uh, person on the front lines of, of the coronavirus? That's such a good question, Andrew. I've asked myself repeatedly because I don't think I knew that I had the capacity to volunteer to put myself out there to do this under such conditions of danger. I know that might um, sound unusual because uh, as you say, I am in the army. My, my role in the army when I graduate from medical school will be to be a, a doctor taking care of soldiers and their families. Um, and uh, although that is a job that's not without risk, um, the risk is not the primary thing that um, uh, the not, it's not the predominant factor of the job, whereas now uh, serving as an EMT during the pandemic, the risk really 
was the predominant thing that we were thinking about. It really changed everything about what we were doing and how we were serving the community. And I didn't really know I had that capacity inside of me until I was doing it. Um, for me, one of the things that's been most important for me is uh, I'm a meditator. I have a serious meditation practice. And I think over the years of meditating, I developed capacities that I hadn't really had a chance to test. And I even surprised myself a little bit um, when I stepped up to do this and found that I was able to do it without fear and I was able to do it um, to the best of my abilities with good intent and with compassion and, and tenderness for my, for my patients. My, you've also lived all over the world, uh, China, India, Kenya, extremely well-traveled. How has the experience of confronting the coronavirus in the United States changed your sense of this country uh, as part of the global community? Mm. Andrew, that's an amazing question. And I think the answer, a really thorough answer, would probably take me years fully to understand. I think in the immediate um, situation, in the present moment, the experience of COVID-19 in the United States reinforces how powerfully interlinked the United States is with the rest of the world, uh, with everyone else on the planet. Um, and raises questions about reflexive assumptions about exceptionalism. We're not uh, exceptional when it comes to our biology or our vulnerability to a virus or to the, again, you know, throughout history, various kinds of microorganisms have exerted evolutionary pressures on human populations. Uh, the Black Death, you know, by some estimates um, killed a, a third of the population of, of Europe or more. Um, so, so this is something that humans have gone through um, as long as we, we are aware. Uh, and it's easy to forget that we're still subject to those forces, that we're still part of that tide of human history ongoing and that the national borders that demarcate us um, don't, separate us from those experiences. As I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, there are parallel crises going on, the one of political resistance in the United States against racism uh, and the coronavirus itself. Do you see those two things connected in anything beyond merely the symbolic? I believe they are absolutely connected. We saw that the coronavirus had greater morbidity and mortality in populations of color. That means populations of color had higher rates of infection and higher fatality rates. It's not understood why. And the most common explanation right now is that these are populations that have greater underlying health conditions, pre-existing underlying health conditions, things like asthma, diabetes, high blood pressure, that 
made them vulnerable to a more severe course of COVID-19 of the coronavirus when they contracted it. And also that these might be populations that might be living in um, housing situations that are more densely populated possibly. Um, so that's one theory, that's one explanation. If that's true, uh, it can't be separated from structural and systematic uh, features of American society that disadvantage people of color, that discriminate against people of color, that make it harder for people of color to enjoy the benefits of the society that we would all love to be able to access and enjoy. Um, and the benefits of the society are tremendous. So to see protests against racial um, discrimination, especially in the form of violence against um, people of color um, and unfair and inequitable policing, which is one of the mechanisms that keeps our community safe and we all need safe communities. I think for, for all of that to be happening right on the heels of a virus that showed that even among, you know, we humans as animals are all susceptible to this virus, but some of us are um, <clears throat> already on a, on a less sure footing in terms of our physiological resiliency. Um, the fact that that was exposed so brutally and with such devastating health consequences right before um, the political protest doesn't strike me as uh, disconnected at all. I think part of what may be happening with the protest is a sense of, you know, perhaps dying from a, a virus is something that that we have less control over, but certainly we should have more control over whether we are wantonly killed by the people who are supposed to be keeping us safe. Uh, you, your three essays in 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 uh, LitHub are, are not for are not for the the overly sensitive. You need a strong stomach to read them. They're brutally honest, and you particularly focus on the on the impact of the virus on the elderly because of your experience uh, as an EMT. Um, you don't so much talk about the the race of, of the elderly, but certainly reading your, your work indicates that uh, this is a virus that picks on old people and does it in the most brutal way. Is that fair? Uh, that's fair, yes. <laughs> Um, Andrew, I, I did want to say the series is ongoing, um, and the three um, essays that I've written so far do touch on, um, you're absolutely right, the demographic of the elderly. Um, there are other essays that uh, are in um, the pipeline, if you will, that address other dimensions of the, the effects of the virus, including um, on race and on um, other social factors like the opioid epidemic that was pre-existing in the community that I was serving, um, and then how did the COVID pandemic um, 
what was that overlay like for the community? Your, your, your work, and I, and I take that point, and, and everyone should not only read these three, but everything else you write, I mean, it's essential reading. Um, I think what you do is speak simultaneously in your work to both the vulnerability and dignity and bravery of old people. Uh, you, you, you bring them to life, even if they're dying. Thank you for saying that. I, everything that you've said, I, I agree with. It is true. I've been really struck by the vulnerability and dignity and lovableness of the old, older patients that I was taking care of. Um, and I was particularly struck. Um, yes, the virus is particularly brutal with uh, pop, with the population that is older, um, we've seen death rates in the double digits for people over 90, for people over 80, um, and, and, and very high death rates for, uh, for the populations that are over 70 and over 60. Um, so the virus really does take a very heavy toll in that population group. And I think one of the things that really struck me was just how, as a society, we haven't really made our peace with the role of um, the, our, the older members of our population. Where, where do they stand in relation to the economy, to the nuclear family, um, to, to us socially? You know, are they our friends? Um, you know, where do they live? Do they live with us? Do they live apart from us in, um, you know, separate housing just for them? Um, so many of the patients that I transported were living in some sort of separate housing, whether it was assisted living or a nursing home. So they were already somewhat isolated from society. They They might still be very vibrant. They might still have wonderful personalities and curiosity and engagement and desire for socializing that they're already in this kind of halfway house socially. Mm. And then um, physiologically they're vulnerable, but also these modes of living made them particularly vulnerable to transmission of the virus because of um, various factors that I think are not well understood. Um, but, but certainly relate to their proximity to one another and to staff that are moving, you know, between rooms or between assisted living houses um, and staff carrying the virus from, from person to person. So I think one of the things that has been most horrifying about the virus is just how it leaves people lonely. Once they're taken to the hospital, they're isolated. Um, their family can't visit them. Um, they're kept in rooms where they're even isolated from the staff. Um, nurses and doctors will try to limit the amount of time they're in the, the rooms. And so they go into a state that's quite solitary. So they were coming from a place that was um, somewhat liminal, you know, neither here nor there. And then, and then they become sick and then they go to a place of real isolation and just the knowledge of 
all these factors being at work made every interaction that I had with my older patients quite poignant. Um, and I wanted to have, to the extent that I could, um, a connection with them because it might be one of the last connections they would have. Right. It's the poignancy of their invisibility that I think really comes out in, in your work and the fact that you do give them, if not a voice, certainly an identity. And I know that you feel very emotional still about the death of your grandparents. So in a sense, you're writing about them as if they were or are your grandparents. That's quite true. I, I adopt all my, my older patients. I, I don't tell them that I adopt them as my secret grandparent, but I, but I do. Uh, Maya, I, 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 I'm not sure how political you are, but um, or, or or how how much of it doesn't so much come out in your work of whether you have strong feelings about the American medical system. But very briefly, you're just one EMT person in New York City. How well do you think the American medical system is coping with this, and and does the coronavirus crisis? speak to the need for a fundamental reform of, 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 of the healthcare system in the United States? So I am speaking just as an individual who, as you said, I'm an EMT, I'm a medical student, I'm a relatively informed, caring human. It strikes me that um, we could be doing a better job I don't think that's a controversial statement. Long before the coronavirus um, sort of brought these um, weaknesses in our system to such um, to such renown, um, it was it was well understood that uh, in the United States we spend a lot more money than any other country in the world, and that our healthcare outcomes are not better. And in fact, many of our healthcare outcomes are worse. Um, our longevity is actually declining. Um, that appears to be in large part because of the opioid epidemic. Um, but our, you know, our maternal and fetal mortality rates are not good for OECD countries. So we spend a lot of money but we're not seeing proportional results. Um, this is well known. And it's not well understood why, uh, but certainly um, exactly th those kinds of problems became very urgent in the coronavirus and um, the emergent situation of the, of the pandemic. Um, so I think some of the things that <clears throat> some of the things that the, quite clearly, even at this early stage um, of of the pandemic, uh, didn't didn't work well is cooperation among um, hospitals and states. You know, hospitals in different states and hospitals within states and regions and um, you know, we have a, a system where hospitals are essentially competitive with one another um, in terms of their their business models. Of course, in terms of medicine, we, we, we share information. If there's innovations at one hospital or whatnot, they, 
try to publish and to, to make their innovations known so that there can be better um, standards of patient care. And, and there, there is a huge effort to develop uh, commonly used standards of practice. Um, but just in terms of operations, hospitals compete with one another. And during the pandemic, it became really clear <laughs> that they needed to cooperate. Um, but they didn't have, you know, those networks in place for cooperation. Um, if they had been able to cooperate, maybe there would have been better capacity to pool personal protective equipment and key resources like ventilators earlier on um, and less need for sourcing these, these things from the outside. There could have been better and more efficient distribution of resources. Potentially there could have been um, better distribution of patients. Um, you know, some hospitals in some areas were quickly overwhelmed and vastly beyond capacity while it took you know, a couple of weeks for other hospitals to catch up. So maybe patients could have been sent to other hospitals. Um, so networks for cooperation could have been valuable, um, I think, in this, in this situation. Um, even, I'll tell you as an EMT, even going to different hospitals, every hospital had a different a protocol in place for how you handed off the patient. And they didn't have standardized uh, ways of managing risk in the emergency rooms that you were going into. So you would see uh, emergency room doctors and nurses in widely varying uh, levels of personal protective equipment um, and hospitals would have widely varying um, uh, pr precautionary measures in place um, for the patients and uh, even things like that um, for the EMTs you know if they had been standardized uh, it would have been it would have created greater safety all around, right? Because an EMT goes to different hospitals and we have more risk of contracting COVID at one hospital. Well, we're going right back into the community and going into people's houses. Um, so we obviously don't want to be vectors for transmission of the virus either. Um, so those kinds of, um, those are some of the things that I observed right away. In terms of the macro level, um, it does seem, just in the, to the most casual observer, that we don't really do a, a great job of distributing our medical resources fairly throughout our population. And aspirationally as a society, I believe that we want to do better. I believe there's actually a consensus that we want to do better. Um, and it would be wonderful if we could come up with some practical methods for implementing fairer distribution of the, of the vast medical resources that we have so that um, we wouldn't have pockets of populations or populations demarcated by ethnicity or race uh, that were in you know, vastly less well of a well off in terms of their access to healthcare than other populations in the country. I hope you're right. Finally, Maya, um, 
As I suggested at the beginning uh, of this conversation, you're the author of The Plague Cycle, appropriately named collection of short stories. People should read that, of course. But what other book might people read to, to make sense of our current crisis as we all continue to be stuck at home? So the book that I think of when you ask that question is Season of Migration to the North by Tayeb Sali. It is published by the New York Review of Books Publishing. Um, Tayeb Sali is, was, he, he, he died a few years ago, Sudanese. The book was originally written in Arabic and has been translated into English. Um, and it's a book that's about every single power dynamic that shaped the 20th century and the legacy of which we live with today. Um, North and South, colonial and colonized, white and black, male and female, um, developed and developing. And uh, also Muslim and non-Muslim. And it's also about illness but metaphorically. Um, and this is a time when, when I like to think that I'm not alone in directing my energies to trying to connect with people and really hoping that what comes out of this uh, pandemic is a, is a society that is um, one that is closer to, to one that we would all feel comfortable living in. And Season of Migration to the North um, is about a person undergoing exactly that struggle in um, an incredibly challenging, yeah, facing an incredible challenge. Um, and, and it's a book that I always emerge from feeling restored and renewed and um, that, that, that taps into my resiliency and invites me to sit down and try again. Um, it's a quick read and it's very poetic and it's very beautiful. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.